Hello and welcome to both the Millennial Politics Podcast and the Brand New Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the folks at Brand New Congress. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and you are listening to our joint series on Venezuela. Today I'm joined by Akinyele Moja, activist, associate professor, and chair of the Department of African American Studies at Georgia State University, and founding member of the Malcolm X Grassroots Movement. So, Professor, could you start by telling us about your background and knowledge of Venezuela? Background, uh, I've been a lifelong activist. I'm 64 years old right now, and um, I've been an activist since I was 18 years old. Um, Very much involved in pro-self-determination, politics, uh, politics uh, related to... uh, the human rights, particularly of African descendants in the United States, but, you know, p- pretty much in terms of oppressed people, particularly people of African descent around the world. And I've been in support of struggles for uh, self-determination around the world, uh, whether they be in Palestine, whether they be in South Africa, whether they be in Zimbabwe, um, you know, uh, Haiti, uh, all over the world. As was mentioned, I'm a member of the Malcolm X grassroots movement, and we were inspired uh, by the Bolivarian Revolution, uh, particularly when uh, Chavez takes power in 99 and some of the things he was doing in terms of instituting participatory democracy, or at least the revolution. I don't want to just put it on one man. But the revolution was doing in terms of inspiring participatory democracy, uh, what it was doing to give more space uh, for you know women, for poor people, for working people, for uh, you know people living in rural areas, and for people of African descent. Uh, we were also encouraged by um, the Bolivarian Revolution redirecting the resources. Uh, the oil resources and oil revenues in the hands of the Venezuelan people to benefit those populations I spoke of earlier, but um, and not just to be the province of the elite, the privileged, and the wealthy and foreign interests. Uh, but not only did he redirect it to the Venezuelan masses, but we saw the revolution um, begin to try to create new economic relations within the region. Uh, new economic relations uh, in terms of countries in Africa and the Caribbean. So we were inspired by those things. And, um, you know, when I say redirect the resources, this meant, you know, investment went into building housing for people who were homeless or living in substandard housing. It meant, the you know, the development of health clinics around the country and educational uh, resources, investing in the education of people around the country, people who wouldn't have access to those things before. So we were inspired by those things. And in particular, uh, my comrade, uh, Shokwe Lumumba was invited in, uh, 2010, uh, to speak in Venezuela at a gathering of Af- Afro descendants. And we got to meet folks there firsthand. And then when Shokwe was elected city council 
the Bolivarian Revolution through its embassy and through Sitco Oil, which is their oil company, uh, they uh, donated energy-efficient light bulbs to people in his community. And that wasn't the only community that um, Bolivarian Revolution uh, made acts of solidarity. One of the greatest offers of solidarity, of course, your audience might remember, is after Katrina, where Venezuela offered uh, solidarity, uh, offered to provide the material aid to people in the Gulf Coast and in New Orleans, but it was rejected by Bush government at that time. Uh, so that's what got me inspired, connected, studying about Venezuela. And um, we did some solidarity work for, for the Bolivarian Revolution here in uh, Atlanta, uh, particularly working with uh, a representative of the Afro-descended community, uh, Jesus Chucho Garcia, who was also serving as the Consul General for the Venezuelan government in uh, the Southeast, based in New Orleans. And so we did some events with him so people could be educated here in the Atlanta area. And, he, you know, they also spoke in uh, Mississippi and other places uh, just to um, give people an idea of what was going on and how related, particularly in black communities, to uh, struggle of African people worldwide, what was the importance of the movement, particularly in the Americas and Caribbean, but also on the African continent. Uh, and so, um, you know, that's just a brief introduction to my connection and um, how I became aware. And you have been to Venezuela on several occasions. Could you tell us about your experiences there? Well, in the last year, I've been to Venezuela three times. Uh, the first time was in March of 2018. I was invited uh, uh, on the occasion of President Maduro signing on to the United Nations International Decade of People of African Descent. Uh, of course, uh, that was declared. The International Decade started in 2015, and uh, the um, cultural worker, the actor Danny Glover, was uh, appointed the ambassador of the United Nations for the decade. And so Danny Glover was there on that occasion. Other people who were there were Muriel Fanon, if your audience is familiar with the great Franz Fanon, the revolutionary psychiatrist, as well as a theoretician who was involved in the Algerian Revolution, even though he's West Indian from Martinique, but his daughter was in attendance, Mary Alphanon. And uh, uh, we also had representation from movements throughout the Americas, representing Afro-descended Afro people um, from Uruguay, from Bolivia, from Argentina, also from um, um, uh, Colombia. And there were folks there represented from um, uh, Trinidad and Barbados, and as well as you know some of us from the United States, and I and I also should mention there were folks there from Brazil, and there was a, a, some folks from the African continent who also uh, participated in that. Uh, we not uh, on that occasion uh, again. President Maduro was able to sign on to the UN um, uh, declaration. And then he kind of surprised us by saying that he 
was in support of the whole concept of reparations. And I want to hold and talk about that in a second. On that trip also, we got to go into the state of Miranda, which has a high percentage of people of African descent. And we got to see some of the things, uh, reasons why black folks in Venezuela are so much in support of the Bolivarian Revolution. Uh, why, why I say that is, um, again, um, they are now more represented in government than they were previous because of the changes and the constitutional changes that were created by the Bolivarian Revolution after Hugo Chavez was elected. Number two, um, there's one of the things that people did in that region were, were black folks were the ones who cultivated, uh, the cacao plant that made chocolates. But, um, because of the revolution, a socialist cooperative has now developed that not only uh, black people are cultivating the plant, but now they run the factory that produces hot chocolate and candy bars and, uh, you know, uh, little candies, uh, for folks. Black people run that factory and work that factory. And so that was one development we saw. And as well as we went to places, one place in particular called the Socialist City of Hugo Chavez. And in that place, New housing was developed for people who had substandard housing and uh, health clinics. A school was built for the education of the children there. But also we saw in the region culture was very much being promoted, particularly the culture of people of African descent was valued. And we went to the Barlavento region, a place that's known for is the African descended population. And there they have a center for the study of people of African descent. And one of his key institutions was Afro TV, which is a television station that the government supported, the revolution supported, that allows the not only the history and the culture of people of African descent to be promoted, but also they, um, you know, they give contemporary news from a, um, a black perspective, if you will. Um, then we went, uh, we went to several other communities where we were welcomed, uh, by folks in those communities. And they were particularly excited that Danny Glover, uh, was coming to visit them. So that was that trip. And, and, and I'll, I'll say this, that it not only allowed for us to, um, see what was happening in Venezuela, but because there were African descendants from across the Americas, we got a chance to meet and share and learn from each other. So that was very powerful. Uh, but I, as I mentioned, President Maduro kind of surprised everyone with his support for reparations. And he called for a gathering of uh, reparations activists and scholars that would occur in May of 2018. And uh, I was again invited back for that. Uh, some of the people who participated in that was a uh, Ralph Concaves, who's a prime minister of uh, St. Vincent and the Grenadines Islands in the, in the Caribbean, and several other Caribbean folk were there. Uh, if you know your audience, listening audience, uh, don't uh, haven't heard that la a couple of years ago, uh, the Caribbean countries, uh, particularly the English-speaking countries, are uh, charging. Uh, or demanding rather that the British Empire play reparations to the British 
former British colonies, particularly the people of African descent and indigenous people in those countries. And, you know, we're talking about countries like Jamaica, Trinidad, Barbados, Guyana, St. Vincent's and uh, Grenadines, uh, Grenada, all those countries are participating in this demand for reparations in the United. So all of those countries were represented with the exception of Guyana in this, uh, this gathering, uh, that we, uh, also, again, there were people, folks from Uruguay, from Bolivia, from, uh, representation from Brazil, from Argentina that participated in this reparations gathering. We had people from France, again, Muriel Fanon attended, uh, uh, and then we had, um, people from the African continent from, uh, Gambia, the UN ambassador, uh, from Gambia participated. We had folks from South Africa. We had people from Algeria. We had governmental representation from Namibia and the Comoro Islands. Uh, so it was a, a Pan-African gathering, if you will. There were some of us there from the United States who had been reparations activists. And again, it got us a chance to meet. And then coming from that conference, uh, President Maduro addressed us and he, um, said that Venezuela would work together with the CARICOM countries, uh, the Caribbean countries on advocating for reparations in the United Nations and the non-aligned movement and the organization of American states and any other international forum. He also became the first, uh, Latin American leader, head of state to declare he was in support of this concept of reparations for African and for indigenous people. And so, um, we consider that many of us consider it a historic conference. Uh, there was also a program of action laid out that we would follow through on. Uh, now going at the same time as our conference, there was a gathering of Afro Venezuelan youth and, uh, we got a chance to meet with them and they convened with us on the last day. And, uh, they really not only learned their history, their culture, but they, declared and they were from people of African descent from throughout the country. Hundreds of youth were selected to participate, but they also uh, declared their support for the revolutionary process and the Bolivarian revolution. Uh, so uh, they very much, uh, if your audience isn't well aware, uh, throughout the Americas, including the United States, there was a tradition of Africans who escaped to the mountains, the hills, the swamps, formed community and resisted enslavement. And uh, Spanish-speaking countries, this is called the Cimarron tradition. And so the Afro-Venezuelan movement, and particularly the youth, identified with this um, Afro-Venezuelan, uh, excuse me, this Cimarron tradition, this, escape, this uh, tradition of runaway Africans who resisted, uh, formed community and continued to fight. Uh, and they particularly, uh, we also, the, the day of the conference, uh, conclusion of the conference and the day we convened with the Afro-Venezuelan youth was on the day of the Afro-Venezuelan. And it draws itself from a man by the name of Jose Chirino, who, uh, led a slave revolt in Venezuela in 1795. And so, uh, 
that was on that occasion. Uh, finally, I was able to go to Venezuela this year, uh, 2019, January 10th, uh, for the inauguration of President Maduro that had, um, even though the United States uh, media didn't cover it, uh, it was rep- it had representation from 94 different states. Of course, you know that um, the United States said that the illegal, excuse me, that the election that Maduro won in May of 2018 was uh, uh, filled with fraud, but it was internationally observed, internationally recognized by most of the inter- majority of the international community. In fact, again, you know, evidenced by the fact that 94 different nations were in representation at his inauguration. Uh, countries from in the, in, uh, in the Americas, including Mexico, um, uh, were in attendance. Uh, you had, uh, of course, Russia and China, who were allies to uh, Venezuela. You had um, Turkey in attendance. You had Iran in attendance. You had South Africa and other African states in attendance. Uh, the, who was missing was the United States, was missing Canada, and, and the majority of the European Union uh, did not participate. And so uh, representing, I guess, Western capitalism, and many of them opposed to the policies, and many of them involved in a, a, the, a economic war against the Venezuelan people. But it was um, 94 different states. I'm, talking, I'm not talking about individuals like me because I don't represent a state. But not 94 different states represented there. There were uh, people from social movements from around the world, including, you know, places like Ireland, uh, places like Spain, places like uh, South Africa and um, uh, uh, from France, uh, social movements from uh, uh, different, again, different parts of Africa, from the Philippines different parts of the Americas. So uh, there was a a significant representation, but the most important representation there were there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Venezuelans in the street in support of his inauguration. And so uh, that was the last visit that I made to Venezuela. And that um, each time has been... uh, inspiring on one level and uh, on another level, it's been one that I've learned a lot. And could you dig into the history of folks of African descent in Venezuela? Wow. Well, of course, just like all other Africans in the diaspora, Venezuelans, uh, particularly in the Western Hemisphere, come here as a consequence of the transatlantic slave trade. and uh, there have been struggles, as you know, that the, as I mentioned, there was a struggle of, uh, uh, you know, uh, what we call the Cimarron, some places called Maroon, other places called the Quilombo tradition. That's the word I prefer because Quilombo is an African word meaning uh, a war camp or warrior society. Uh, and actually, the term originates in West Central Africa. I think there's a strong heritage of Venezuelan people from West Central Africa, countries like Congo, Angola, or both Congos and Angola. 
Uh, there's a heritage of people in Venezuela from those places, but they also have other people from Western Africa. And again, there was this tradition of resistance. Uh, there were slave revolts. And then uh, Venezuela, uh, we know, gets its independence uh, from because of the leadership and the army of Simon Bolivar. Now, Simon Bolivar um, received help and assistance, material aid uh, from Haiti. He, he reached out to Haiti in the 1820s, and then Haiti provided him uh, provided them military training. They, they provided arms. They provided uh, um, soldiers, <laughs> actually, actually sent soldiers there to fight on the condition that uh, Bolivar would emancipate enslaved African people. And of course, there were Africans from Venezuela who actually were part of Bolivar's army, uh, men and women who were part of his army. And so uh, right at the the uh, center of um, Venezuela getting its independence was very much tied to the liberation of African people, as opposed to, you know, the independence struggle here in the United States when George Washington and those won the independence. They kept black people in slavery, right? Maybe some, a few loyal captives were received their independence. But it was completely different in Venezuela as it was in Cuba. So, um, and from that point, though, the people of African descent still, even after emancipation, were in the lower rung of the economy. Uh, they weren't really represented in leadership. And I think a breakthrough in Venezuela, as, as, as well as other parts of the Americas, was the 2001 Conference Against Racism in South Africa. And that meant a mobilization, that created space for a mobilization of people of African descent throughout the country. And um, a lot of times people of African descent in Latin America, many societies are invisible. Um, there wasn't a lot of promotion. Uh, just like in the United States, you know that we had a black power and black consciousness movement in the 1960s. And that movement made black people more aware and more conscious of our heritage. Well, I think that movement occurs in Venezuela and other parts of Latin America after the world, the motion toward the World Conference Against Racism, because activists in all of those places use that space in that time to network with each other. And in Venezuela, there was a group created called the uh, Network of Afro-Venezuelan Organizations is a part of that mo motion. Simon, uh, it occurred almost uh, because we said Hugo Chavez takes power in 1999. So there was some interaction between the, the Bolivarian Revolution and Chavez government with this developing Afro-descendant movement. And so from that, you have uh, some of the things I've talked about er earlier, uh, advocacy on the part of black activists in Venezuela for uh, centers of uh, black studies, for uh, for more heritage of uh, people of African descent in the, in the curriculum, for uh, uh, economic and social changes, 
and also for just recognition. Uh, one of the things that in the, in the 1999 uh, Constitution of Venezuela, indigenous people were recognized as a distinct ethnic group uh, with certain rights, cultural and social rights. And so one of the things that um, black activists are struggling for there is a similar status of people of African descent, even to be recognized and counted in the census. And um, there's a belief that uh, the numbers in Venezuela of people of African descent have been grossly undercounted. And so now uh, in the census, they will be identified. Uh, there's a belief, you know, some, there's some, uh, some who argue that black people make up about, you know, maybe 12% of the population, but there are some who argue it might be as high as 53%. But with documentation of how people identify themselves. And I'll, I'll say one other thing that, uh, religions of African origin are growing in Venezuela. So religions from particularly uh, Southwest Nigeria, from the Yoruba people, are growing. Uh, some to some extent, the, uh, some of that existed because of the transatlantic slave trade. But then another, uh, up to an, another degree, because of the interaction between Cuba, where those religions are very dynamic, and uh, Cuba and Venezuela, uh, that they appear to be on the rise too. Not only there, but in other parts of, of Latin America, we're seeing religions of Afri African origin increasing their uh, knowledge as well as practice. And they're very much connected to the music of the people in Venezuela uh, also. Uh, one of the most popular groups in Venezuela is this uh, female singing group uh, called Elegua. Elegua is a important uh, deity important spirit uh, in the uh, Yoruba tradition. So that's just a, a short, brief overview of the culture, uh, excuse me, of uh, Afro-descendants in Venezuela. And what exactly was the Bolivarian Revolution and how did it change the conditions for Afro-Venezuelans in the country? Well, what the Bol Bolivarian Revolution is this, uh, in 1989, there was a significant economic crisis in Venezuela, uh, economic crisis that was created by um, the World Bank and International Monetary Fund and their neoliberal policies, uh, placing uh, 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 um, policies on the Venezuelan people that increased the price of oil, increased the price of food, and other things that were necessity necessary for people's survival. With the raising of those prices, it created um, um, outrage and uprisings in the street, uh, basic, basic popular rebellion. And so after that occurs, popular movement, that began to affect different parts of society and were um, particularly elements of the military. And there had always been historically in the military um, officers and enlisted men who were committed to social change, right? And, uh, and, and greater democracy. And one of those people was Hugo Chavez. And so uh, Hugo Chavez, 
along with others in the early 90s, began to plot in the military to do a military coup. And but unfortunately for them, the coup was unsuccessful. Uh, they they set out to have this military coup. It didn't look like it was going to be successful after they embark upon it. And so rather than create a lot of bloodshed, Chavez, as the leader of the military rebellion, uh, offers to turn himself in. Um, and but his one stipulation for not uh, not to. Uh, uh, go and have military combat was to speak before the nation. And he agrees to speak before the nation. I mean, excuse me, the uh, uh, Venezuelan government agrees to allow him to speak before the nation. And when he speaks before the nation, he endears himself uh, to Venezuelan people. You know, he speaks about the aim of their attempted um, rebellion and why he was going to uh, engage in a, uh, a military coup. But he becomes a popular hero by doing that. And then after he becomes this popular hero amongst the people, there's a, a presidential campaign where one of the presidential candidates says that if he wins, he's going to free Hugo Chavez, right? And... Um, he ends up winning. That becomes a popular demand. So Hugo Chavez is released in uh, 1994, I believe. And then once he's released, he hooks up with uh, elements, uh, uh, radical elements in the country who, who began to uh, protest, particularly against the neoliberal policies instituted by the World Bank and International Monetary Fund and agreed to by the Venezuelan elite, and they began to campaign. And then it's in 1998 that Hugo Chavez is elected president. And as I mentioned, once he's elected president, then um, Chavez, um, again, changes the Constitution. And this allows for greater participation of people who have been locked out of participation in politics and government previously. Uh, Chavez also, again, as I mentioned earlier, he redirects oil resources, um, the oil revenues. So uh, it benefits particularly through uh, investment in education, investment in uh, healthcare, investment in housing. It changes the lives, not only for people of African descent, but working people, poor people. Uh, but again, I would argue because of the motion of the black community, uh, particularly activist black community that occurred uh, through the uh, motion toward the Durban Conference, World Conference Against Racism, uh, aligning itself with the Bolivarian Revolution, uh, black people uh, began to not only identify with the Bolivarian Revolution, but benefit from it. I think. Um, one of the things that's occurred too is because there's so much mobilization of black folks, uh, for the Bolivarian revolution. Uh, and, uh, to your audience, I really didn't explain what, why they call itself the Bolivarian revolution, but it was because, uh, Simone Bolivar was the leader of the fight for independence against, uh, Spanish colonialism. 
And so there's an identification with uh, Bolivar by the entire country. But at the same time, black folks identify with the Cimarron tradition and they see themselves and they're inspired by that. Uh, and even that the, uh, the forwarding and the space that the knowledge of um, black black resistance being connected to the Cimarron tradition that's linked to uh, what the revolution has uh, the space that it's given for black activists to begin to organize. But because of that connection between black activists and the Bolivarian Revolution, the right wing, it tends to be more white, <laughs> we could say, it tends to be more whiter. Uh, they oftentimes consider uh, Chavista or somebody who supports the policies of Chavez as black people. And so in doing uh, um, counter-revolutionary activity, of uh, 2016 and 17, you even had cases of black people, not even activists, but black people being set on fire by these uh, right-wing forces that tend to be white. It's kind of like they're white supremacist forces. Uh, so, and um, black people, and not all Chavistas are black, and I want to make it clear to your audience, you know, they're a, a, a multicultural, if you will. There's uh, people who traditionally be called mestizos. There are some people traditionally who be called white. They're black folk. They're indigenous folk. Again, they're women. Um, the women of all ethnicities uh, who are involved in support of the Bolivarian Revolution. Um, but uh, so that's the kind of connection there. Um, and again, it's, it's been beneficial. Uh, one of the things, one of the material things I saw um, was I visited in Caracas, and the mayor of Caracas is a woman of African descent. Uh, but in Caracas, uh, there was this mountain that had housing um, for poor people on one side of the mountain. And on the other side of the mountain, there was... Uh, um, People were, who had privilege and who were, who were at least middle class. On the wealthy side, the privileged side of the mountain, you had roads that lead, led up the mountain. On the, uh, so people had needed to get from the bottom to the top, particularly carrying goods. Um, they could carry their cars up, but on the, uh, the side of the mountain that people were poor and working people, there, were, there was no such road and there wasn't transportation. So particularly people who were uh, disabled had difficulty getting from the bottom to the top. And so uh, Chavez was uh, lobbied by a man who was disabled in a wheelchair saying he couldn't get his produce up. And when Chavez became aware of that, they built a ski lift, basically, that takes people from the bottom to the top of the mountain. Again, that's what revolution, that's an example of what revolution means to people who've been historically dispossessed, who've been people who helped to build countries, people uh, like the indigenous people who whose uh, land had been taken, but had been, uh, you know, confined to the margins of, you know, society and confined to the margins of, uh, you know, uh, resources and decision-making. 
And so, uh, and, you know, African people who were enslaved were also pushed to the margins. And so what revolution has meant in Venezuela is an opportunity for folk to uh, go from margin to center, uh, to quote the great bell hooks, right? And so, uh, you know, that was, that's some of what I witnessed while I was there. And Chavez openly discussed having indigenous and African descent. Right now, we're seeing some terms that we definitely know are racialized in the U.S. to describe a lot of what's happening. We're hearing Maduro's thugs. That's one of the biggest terms, gangs. How is race and racism, how is anti-Blackness shaping the narrative about Venezuela in the U.S. right now? In the United States, I think it's just a general. I would, I would even go beyond race. I think the United States, you know, most of us were raised on the Monroe Doctrine. And so Monroe Doctrine in and of itself, I think, expresses white supremacy, just like the concept of manifest destiny does. You know, for those of you in your audience who might not remember what we were taught in elementary school, K-12 through and social studies, the Monroe Doctrine was posed in the 1820s as this doctrine that the United States should control everything in the Western Hemisphere, that it shouldn't be any foreign uh, interests that didn't align with the interests of the United States. And so what that meant that and Haiti, it meant that uh, the United States opposed the Haitian Revolution in the 1915 invaded Haiti, and again has uh, um, supported a coup in Haiti when it had a popularly elected government in 1990. Uh, the first Bush administration opposed that and supported a coup there, and then the second Bush administration opposed the um, the um, Haitian Revolution, uh, Bush administration, George W. Bush uh, supported the uh, overthrow of Haiti and the uh, United States even now has an occupation of Haiti. But it, uh, again, overthrow two properly elected governments. Uh, you know, of course, we know the role of the United States in overthrowing the uh, government of Salvador Allende. You know, the role they played in uh, Honduras recently, you know, the role that they played in attempting to assassinate Fidel Castro and putting sanctions on Cuba. Uh, we know that there have been at least 56 military interventions by the United States in the Western Hemisphere, Guatemala, several other places. We know that they, you know, they bombed the harbors in Nicaragua. So that, and I would say, is a racial heritage uh, that the United States uh, opposes these foreign powers, and then the people of the United States, since we're fed that the, the U.S. is superior to these Latin countries and these Caribbean countries racially, uh, you know, that's the underlying, uh, that, you know, the United States should, ha should have the right to just control these folk. Now, uh, in Venezuela, in particular, since um, the politics of supporting the National Assembly, and I don't know if most of the American population 
is really aware and attentive of the um, the role that black people play in the Venezuelan and Bolivarian revolution. So I don't think they do know. But in Venezuela itself, uh, Juan Guaido, the, the uh, Venezuelan right wing, they do represent the historic uh, white elite in the country. They do uh, represent they don't they don't represent you know forces uh of indigenous and african people in fact you said as you said that uh chavez himself um uh, embraced his african and indigenous heritage he would talk about the if you look at his hair you can see his african roots um i think to most of the venezuelan elite that was probably an embarrassment uh, the, th the thought that a person of, of African and indigenous descent would be the leader of their country. And so uh, there is a racial dynamic. Um, there, the One of the ways Bolivarian Revolution has operated was that they've actually they took power through elections, not by the gun, and they've actually gotten policy occurring through elections. There have been over 25 different elections since the election of Chavez. The one election um, that they didn't do well in uh, was the election of a national assembly, a mostly, uh, uh, that got a lot of representation of right-wing forces. And these forces are who Juan Widow represents uh, in power right now. These forces, uh, there was created a constitutional crisis in the country. And because of the constitutional crisis um, and upheaval that occurred from that, um, there was negotiations and that's what led to the elections of 2018. And that's why we have this, the uh, wine uh, white O's, uh, what he calls his national assembly. If you were to look at the National Assembly, uh, it looks so similar to the United States Congress. It's pretty white. <laughs> but if you look at this constituent assembly that exists now after uh, the negotiation process and attempts by the government to bring a peaceful situation, it's pretty multi-ethnic. And it's not only multi-ethnic, it's pretty uh, gender balanced uh, with a lot of female participation. Uh, it's very diverse. And so those are the, the internal dynamics. Uh, of course, the U.S. government is aware of this, and the U.S. elites, but I don't think there are people who live in the United States uh, are aware of these ethnic and racial dynamics that occur in Venezuela. What are kind of the demographics behind the elections? What kind of support does the opposition get? Well, the elections, as we mentioned, there was a negotiation after the constitutional crisis, right? And uh, there was an agreement for these elections that would happen in May. They used to, they usually happen in December of every, uh, when they, uh, when you have uh, December every six years, but they moved it forward uh, to uh, appease the demands of the right wing. 
But Trump and Pence, the uh, United States government, asked the right wing not to participate. Some of the right wing participated in spite of that. And some of them didn't participate at the, uh, because of the demands of the right wing. When that happened, um, the, uh, um, the elections took place with some of the right wing participating and Maduro got with, uh, I believe it was like 44% of the population participating. Um, it was a uh, forty uh, of the potential uh, electorate participating. I should say, uh, Maduro got sixty eight percent of the vote. Uh, the right wing forces who did participate uh, said, you know, at the end that it was a free and fair election. In fact, we know that the Venezuelan uh, election tradition historically, uh, since the uh, beginning of the Bolivarian Revolution. Uh, we know that Jimmy Carter said that their election process was amongst the best in the world, if not the best that he observed out of the elections he had observed all over the globe. Uh, but at the same time, and then uh, if the audience might not know that Venezuelan's elections are observed by international observers, and each uh, voter gets a, a printout of their ballot, of how they voted, and each voter was only able to participate because they provide a fingerprint. So the chances of fraud are, you know, very difficult. The Venezuelan process is more, is, is better monitored than the elections are in the United States. In fact, uh, being somebody that lives in Georgia, we need that type of observation other elections that occurred down here, not to mention the registration that occurs here with the great amount of voter suppression that happens in the United States, particularly in the South, in states like Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. Of course, your, you know, your audience know about that from this last elections, uh, wave of elections that just occurred. Obviously, the U.S. is not the only country or body that has recognized Juan Guaido as the, quote, legitimate leader of Venezuela. We also have the Lima group. We have Brazil, Colombia, the EU. Why are all of these international bodies in the West recognizing uh, recognizing Guaido? Well, I, I like to pose it a little bit different because uh, you know that these countries that are, are supporting Juan Guaido, they're in the minority. The majority of the world is supporting Maduro. Uh, and so and what's up my evidence for that is when the Lima group, which constitutes these groups that are opposed, or countries, I should say, not groups, these states that are opposed to uh, Maduro's uh, presidency, uh, there are some Latin American and a few Caribbean states that are opposed to his presidency. When they went before the, the Organization of American States and they've gone twice, uh, they were defeated. A majority of the American countries, countries in America, voted in support of Maduro's presidency and, and did not acknowledge Juan Guaido as the president. 
Then when they went before the UN Security Council, it wasn't just that Russia and China vetoed it, but the majority of the United Nations Security Council would not support the United States call for um, uh, support for Juan Guido and his government. So um, most of these countries are countries that are beholden to the United States, beholden to the International Monetary Fund, beholden to the World Bank. and uh, But the Caribbean countries have called for a peaceful negotiation between Guaido and, um, excuse me, the right wing and the Bolivarian Revolution. Uh, so has Uruguay and Mexico. But it's the United States and France and uh, England and, you know, the former colonial powers, Canada, who are recognizing Guaido and then uh, pushing sanctions, which is economic warfare. Um, so it's not that um, Guaido has a majority of uh, support from nations around the world. Maduro still has that. Uh, we should also say that when uh, this whole attempt by the the Trump administration to bring in quote unquote humanitarian aid to starving Venezuelans, uh, it's interesting because the whole, a good part of the economic situation in Venezuela was created by the sanctions opposed by the United States and its allied nations, right? And so with that, how how do you, on the other hand, say you're going to bring in humanitarian aid where you have sanctions? And they've even increased the sanctions. But be it as it may, we got to recognize that the United Nations and the Red Cross said they would not be involved in Trump's attempt to bring in, quote-unquote, humanitarian aid. Uh, that tells us something right now. Because they saw that attempt as weaponizing aid uh, and politicizing aid, uh, aid, uh, not an attempt. We must also know that uh, you know Maduro was painted in the U.S. media and the corporate media as being somebody who opposed his people receiving aid. And but there are other countries that have provided medicine, provided food, and other things to the Venezuelan people in, you know, who are basically responding to uh, the, the sanctions, which again is economic warfare. The United States is already waging warfare against the Venezuelan people uh, through these economic sanctions. What would the effects of a Juan Guaido opposition takeover be for Afro-Venezuelans? Uh, when I think not only for Afro-Venezuelans, for the masses of people, things like hospitals being built, medical uh, clinics being built, housing being built, uh, that wouldn't occur. Uh, the uh, emphasis on and support for cultural development, uh, that would be shut down. And so, again, this is why uh, Afro-Venezuelan leaders and activists have been in opposition to the uh, presidency of Juan Guaido that they consider a puppet presidency and they actually see it as an assault on Venezuelan sovereignty. And so it would have an impact on not only on Afro-Venezuelans but the entire 
Venezuelan population. Negative effect. And why is it that the U.S. is so invested in this? The U.S. is considering military intervention. The Lima group who does support Juan Guaido has said no to that. What is the U.S. end goal here? And keep in mind, uh, um, Mexico was once part of the Lima group and pulled out um, and is uh, calling for peaceful negotiation. Um, again, we have to go back to Monroe Doctrine. When Mike Pence was asked, you know, because Donald Trump, you know, is supposed to be uh, isolationist, right? And when Mike Pence was asked about this, he said Venezuela is in the Western Hemisphere. So the U.S. is, again, trying to maintain its dominance of the hemisphere. And the other question is oil. You know, Venezuela has the largest oil reserves in the world right now. And so it's not only uh, Pence and Bush, but people like Mike Bolton and other elements of the Bush administration, Bush, Trump administration have been calling for the takeover of Venezuela so they can control those oil resources. I, I laugh, you know, when I said Bush, a Bush administration, because it's similar to the case of Iraq, right, where that was a war for oil. It wasn't any, we haven't found in all this period of time any uh, weapons of mass destruction. And the same type of propaganda and same type of disinformation is being spread through the, particularly through the corporate media, uh, to try to support, as you said, um, possible military intervention. But just the destabilization that's occurring to Venezuelan economy. And this, uh, again, this, uh, even the promotion, this attempted coup with Juan Guaido, who was Juan Guaido was prior to this, uh, his decla declaration that he was the legal president of Venezuela was only known by one out of five Venezuelans, uh, had virtually little popular support, but it's, uh, being promoted as a puppet by the U.S. government. It's right straight out of a textbook of establishing a Latin American dictator. And that's what we're experiencing right now. And so the question is for folks who live here in the United States, are we going to allow that? And for that type of uh, toppling of a popularly elected government, of a violation of people's self-determination, are we going to allow that to happen? With, with our, under our watch and with our tax dollars? That's the question. And what are folks currently doing to stand in solidarity with Afro-Venezuelans and self-determination in Venezuela right now? Well, there have been uh, coalitions like the No War on Venezuela Coalition. Uh, people can find that online. Uh, there are anti-sanctions groups that have been working uh, to particularly lobby people in Congress uh, to oppose the sanctions against Venezuela. There's been uh, efforts by people to get uh, people in Congress uh, to call for no military intervention on Venezuela, which will have effect on Afro-Venezuelans and all, uh, all uh, Venezuelans. Uh, I would like to see uh, more uh, people 
uh, engage in communication with people in the country, particularly Afro-Venezuelans. Uh, we are uh, making attempt for uh, black organizations to express their solidarity in a more vocal way. And, and But the major thing we're trying to do is to provide, and this is why I'm so glad you allowed us to come on you on this podcast, but to provide political education to counter a lot of the propaganda that comes from U.S. corporate media. And it's been horrible with even uh, stations, that's not just Fox, but even MSNBC, CNN, uh, and some of our, you know, ABC, the other stations, the coverage that they're having on Venezuela that in no way uh, has any balanced uh, news of this situation. So, for instance, uh, Juan Guaido can have a rally and it can have coverage and there are hundreds of people there. De Maduro has a rally and it's like tens of thousands, it's hundreds of thousands of people in the street. You know what I mean? So it's no, uh, it's no uh, balance uh, to this news, even if they were going to cover it from a balanced perspective. And we've been encouraged people to listen to like Democracy Now! or read uh, online Venezuela analysis or Telesur, the news station of, of Venezuela, to get more uh, information about what's going on. People have to be informed so we can act in a better manner. And you're already kind of jumping into it. What actions can our listeners take right now? So, yeah, I think, number one, be more informed. Uh, check out those news sources I told you, Venezuela Analysis. Telesur in English, and it comes in English for those like me who are uh, challenged by our Spanish. Uh, democracy Now. And then to share those sources with your friends. So, again, people can become more informed. And if you move out of this, go to no war on Venezuela, uh, com and to get more information. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today and helping educate our audience about this subject. Thank you for having me and uh, I'll continue to do the good work out there. Thank you so much. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to keep up to date with the Millennial Politics podcast and the brand new podcast joint series on Venezuela. Make sure to subscribe to both of the podcasts on iTunes. Check out our websites, brandnewcongress.org and millennialpolitics.co, and follow us on social media. Thanks for listening.